Well, good morning. What a great day. I mean, this, this is the day um, in our faith that marks everything. The death of Christ, not followed by the resurrection. Um, Paul says it would all be futile. Saul hated the followers of Jesus. And one day as he was going after them to persecute them because he would actually imprison and even have them put to death, he was on his way to Damascus on a road and on that road was disrupted by a vision or an encounter with the risen Jesus. And it was such a radical transformation that he changed his name. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. And that experience was so profound that as he was in that moment of encounter, he was physically, temporarily blinded. But had this incredible experience where in his heart, his spirit, his eyes saw for the first time. And what I think is really, really neat is when you read Scripture as he writes to a group of people in a place called Ephesus, he makes this his prayer for them and for us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. We've been in a series on disruptive and looking at the Beatitudes and how those Beatitudes are disruptive in the way that we think, in the way that we look at life, in the way it challenges us. Because God has the ability, and this, as we look at Easter and the resurrection, there is no event in all of history. There's no event in any religious system, in all time, in any place, that compares to this day that we celebrate the resurrection power and the life of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and I want to pray this prayer together. I will pray it. I'm just going to ask you. You may be attending for the first time, or maybe with a friend, or have been here many years, but this is my prayer, and I've been praying. So I pray that the eyes of your heart and my heart may be enlightened in order that we may know God's incomparably great power as we will trust and, and, and stretch in belief of him. That we might know that power which exerted itself with mighty strength by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. We open our hearts to you and ask that our eyes may see. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Boys, you have to hear this. Calling for help. We are learning some brand new details about the moments a toddler was found alive 14 hours after the car that she was in crashed into a river. Four rescuers in Utah now say that they definitely heard a woman's voice screaming and begging for help before they reached the car, which was under the water. But they can't explain it because that child's mother was dead inside the car. When we all talked together, I, I said, was I the only one that was hearing this, thinking I was hearing things? And, and when I talked to the other officers, we all had heard the same thing, a, you know, a voice saying, help us, help me. 
so remarkable. 18-month-old Lily Grosvick, she was hanging upside down in her car seat when the rescuers finally got to her. They say it is a miracle that she survived. Wow, baby Lily is still in the hospital, but her family says she is getting much better. That mother's voice, in my opinion, yeah. was an angel. And all of them heard it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, interesting. Well, what I find is interesting in that is that one of the officers, his name is Jared Warner, said, we'd gotten together and just started talking about it. This is after the event. And all four of us can swear that we heard somebody inside the car saying, help. The mother was dead on impact. The rescuers told the local media that they were unsure where the voice came from and that they each had heard it separately and it definitely did not sound like a child. And when a newspaper reporter asked the officers, how do you explain that? They, they just shrugged their shoulders and said, I don't know. I don't know. Events like that are disruptive. They cause us to wonder. They create questions. And every one of us will fill it with some ideas from our own minds. There are events that happen in our life that cause us to be disrupted. Some of you experienced that last night in your brackets. <laughs> right? How many were going for Kentucky all the way? Okay. The resurrection is the most disruptive event in history. If you honestly want to look at it, no one before or after has willingly or intentionally died in that way. And then willfully and intentionally came back to life from death. No one has exerted that kind of power over death. It has to cause you to think and to wonder. I remember my grandmother, when she passed away, I was very close to my grandmother. Uh, my grandma, Grandma Ebner was her name. It was the first funeral for me in my high school days where this person was really close to me. I hadn't really been touched by many funerals, and this was someone who I loved dearly. She lived with us for a number of years. In fact, I remember I would um, sit on the edge of her kind of comfy rocking chair that was in our house, and she would be in the family room, and I'd sit on the edge of that, and she would just tickle and kind of scratch my back. I mean, I mean, how many love that like as kids and adults, right? Come on, adults. I mean, I, I tell you, that, and, 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 and from that kind of bond, she'd do that for hours, and then and she would play games, and I just loved her because her life, and, and, and sometimes she, you know, she was in her um, mid-70s at that time, she would fall asleep, and I'd see her head kind of going like this, and then it would kind of rest like this. And, and I liked to play games, and so I remember one time, a couple different times, I would cut out these little white pieces of paper, and I would shove them behind her glasses while she's sleeping. <laughs> I know, I mean, really... I was like a seventh grader, so you know what, you know, they don't think a lot. But I, and then I'd say, Grandma, and she'd, hey! <clears throat> oh, Kevin, she knew it was me all the time. <laughs> and so on the day of her funeral, I stood at her open casket and I looked at her. And she just looked to me like she was sleeping. And I had this urge to shake her and to wake her up. But I also knew that the power of death was too great. And not for Jesus. Death was nothing more like waking from sleep. Jesus rose from the grip of death. 
like an adult who's being held by the grip of a little child when they pull away. It was nothing. The power of Jesus was so revolutionary. Matthew records that on that Sunday morning, in Matthew 28, verse 2, there was a great earth and violent earthquake. And for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the word roll back isn't really quite accurate if you really want to get the idea of it because it, it, this, this big stone that would be in these grooves that you would, you would kind of have a little piece, you'd pull it out and you would easily, really one person could roll it down into place, but it would take a number of people to take this you know, many ton stone back into place to roll that back. And, and it wasn't like the angel came down and, 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 and rolled it back. It's this idea that like a tiddlywink. Anybody, I date myself here, anybody tiddlywinks? It's, it's this kind of power. It's like this tiddlywink. This thing kind of goes rolling over and flips onto its side. So the angel is actually sitting on this disc on the ground. And Matthew continues, The angel's appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of them that they shook and became like dead men. These are Roman-trained guards. They'd been in battle. They'd been seasoned. They understood. And they were like dead in the presence of this power. Even his enemies, those who chose not to believe Jesus, feared his power over death. After Jesus was crucified, Matthew writes that the chief priests of the Pharisees went to Pilate and they said this, Matthew 27, 63 through 66. They very politely come to, to Pilate. They've already wished, really leaned too much onto Pilate already, but at this point they just know they have to do this. So they say, sir, they said to Pilate, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. Now you've got to get this. The disciples, they're not getting this. They're despairing. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. What the first was that he claimed to be God in flesh. He claimed to be the rightful king. The one fully anointed and soaking in the Holy Spirit to do the work of God, to bring his kingdom to earth. And Pilate is just, I think, a little bit bothered now by it all and says, take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I mean, really think about it. If there really is a God, what good is that going to do? Well, I guess it matters what would you believe and what your ideas are about reality. In fact, they had seen his miracles and had been disrupted by them in the past that they were well aware that if Jesus continued to display this revolutionary power with this truth that would set people free, it would disrupt their lives as, and, and actually would disrupt the world as they knew it. The reality, their ideas that they wanted to cling to where the world, in a sense, revolved around them and their power and their values and their ideas of what they knew to be right or wrong or what they claimed to be right or wrong would be totally turned upside down if this event occurred because it would establish the truth of who he is. So, in fact, the authority, they actually say in John 11, they, they let us into their little secret huddle John eleven forty seven 47-48, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, 
They're worried now. It's just weeks before the Passion Week. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come, here's, here's the key, and take away both our temple and our nation and our power and position and our ideas and who we are will be all messed up. They feared the disruption that Jesus would bring to their life and not like many of us fear as well, honestly. We fear that someone else from the outside will come in and begin to mess with what we really believe and what we understand and and what we hold to and what our life revolves around. Because we really believe that we got a corner on what is truth and how we understand reality, right? We're really not that far from them. But you have to pause and wonder. I ask you to pause and wonder. If Jesus got this one right, this overcoming death with life, if Jesus got this one right, maybe just, maybe, Jesus is right on everything else. Maybe, just maybe, his ideas and understanding of reality are right. Maybe he understands reality better than you and me. Maybe his ideas about life are more accurate than yours and mine. Maybe he understands what will actually make your relationships better than than you can through your own wisdom and strength in all the years you've tried to make the other person change. Maybe, Maybe Jesus has a better grasp on what will really truly fulfill your deepest desires. Maybe Jesus knows what is true. And what is right. So here's the question I want to ask you. Are you willing to be disrupted on this great Easter day? Are you willing to let Jesus disrupt your life? I don't know what it is in your own heart and your own life. It may be that you've never dealt with this whole idea of Jesus. And and coming at Christmas and Easter is a good time to kind of do the religious thing. And maybe today, maybe today, Jesus will disrupt some thoughts and ideas in your head. Or maybe you've been doing this for a long time and you think you got it all down and you got it all in place and you got all your ideas right and maybe Jesus wants to mess with that. Are you willing to let his reality penetrate your reality? Are you willing to humble yourself and follow his way? And could it be, could it be that today is a wake-up call for you for the first time? Maybe on a deeper level. Could it be that Jesus wants to disrupt you, actually mess with your mental map of what you have trusted in. Rearrange the furniture of belief in your mind that you've been resting on. First, I just want you to think about this this morning. What's your mental map of how life works as you understand reality? One very humble philosopher writes these words. People are fully at the mercy of their ideas. Okay, just kidding. We're all, every one of us, fully at the mercy of ideas. That's just how we're made. Every one of us has a map in our mind made up of our ideas about life, how things work, who we are, and so on. And that map tells us how things hold together, what's important, and what leads to what. When tackling all the major objectives of human life, 
we consult that map. Even if we want to get a better map, the only place we have to start is the map we've already got. That should make us very humble. Right? It should make us very ready to reach out to God and say, Lord, correct my map. Guide my ideas. And I love what he says next because this is so true. Yet the area about which we tend to be the most proud and rigid is our ideas. Sometimes they're wrong, and yet we're still so proud of those ideas. It's often the case that we picked up certain ideas somewhere a long time ago, and we've had them forever, and we're just faithful to them. You know, you've had that. When you, you, know, you get married, let's just use this as an example, and you come together, and you have kids, and you begin to start parenting, and, and you each have your mental map of how to parent, right? And, and you all know, I mean, I knew mine was right. Until I bumped up against my wife's mental map. That happens in all kinds of ways in our life. And he says, well, ideas, guess what? Ideas may be false. And yet we still find ourselves at their mercy. So we need to ensure that our ideas are built on truth and reality. So this morning, I ask you, what's your mental map? Are you willing to be disrupted if you rewind the tape, just a, fi- a few days, uh, the final days of Jesus, just, just that, that day before, as he was on trial with Pilate, Jesus is brought to Pilate after he's been on trial by the Sanhedrin, and they're now ready to make the sentence that says he needs to die. But there's one problem. The Jews didn't have the authority to execute someone. You see, there was a time in the history of the Jewish nation where they would execute people. Because in their law, they had that as one thing they could do. But it was creating so many riots and so much disruption that the Roman government of that area came and said, we'll let you go ahead and levy any kind of criminal sentence you want, but not death. So they had to go to Pilate. So they go to Pilate and they're saying, Pilate, you know what, we think this guy deserves death. And he says, so what's the claim? He says, because he's claiming to be king. Well, they know that's going to put Pilate in a bad spot because there's only one king, and his name is Caesar. So they're kind of putting him in a fence. And so Pilate actually takes Jesus, brings him into a back room. And I don't think Pilate understood what he was getting into. I don't, I, I don't, have, I don't think he understood what he, he, what he bargained for by, by bringing Jesus back there. Someone should have asked Pilate, I think, at that moment, are you willing to have your ideas of reality disrupted? So in John 18, verses 33 through 38, you have this interchange between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate summons Jesus, asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate asked? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have, fight, would have fought to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. It's a different reality. Aha, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You're going, oh, you're getting a little philosophical on me. Let me just make it really simple. You could actually translate this in this way. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world was to point to reality. Everyone on the side of reality listens to me. 
People who are hungry to know what's really true and what's really real, if they're leaning into that in their life, and I, you, we all come from different places, but if your deep desire is to know what is true and what is really the reality of this world which we are created in, he says those people go, oh yeah, he makes sense. Kind of like the guy who says, you know what, if you stand on a 12-story building, let me just share with you, if you jump, you're going to be in trouble. Right? People leaning into reality kind of go, oh, that's, I'll listen to you. And Jesus is saying, you know, those who are on the side of truth, those who are, are pressing into what is really real reality, truth, they tend to listen to me. In a sense, Jesus is basically saying, those who listen understand this makes sense. And so then Pilate makes this statement. Whenever you want to move away from truth, what is truth? Oh, yeah. So what is reality? Your reality, my reality. Which reality are we talking about here? And with this, he went out again to the Jews because deep down he knew there was a deep reality that he was standing in front of and he did everything he could to find no basis for charge against him and his hand was forced until the Jews basically said, this is the Jewish leaders. We have no king but Caesar. (laughs) Really? What reality are you guys living in? So if you're honestly asked the question, you really want truth, be prepared to be disrupted. So here's the second thing I want you to think about. How accurate is your mental map of reality? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about, you know, is it 80%, maybe 95%? You know, your spouse may think so, but, you, you know... Where really is your map of reality? Kids, you look at your parents and you kind of go, they're lucky if they get 20%, right? And then all of a sudden you get to be about 25 and you go, wow, they really had a pretty good map of reality. How accurate is your map mentally of reality? I meet with a guy's group on uh, Monday mornings, one of the guy's group I meet with, and one of the guys brought up this, uh, this, this HBO special called Going Clear. Anybody familiar with that? The whole Scientology thing? And uh, it, it's, there's a lot of news about it these days, but it's a documentary on the distorted and abusive faith, which is called Scientology. And there's a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, who is the founder of it. He's passed away, but he wrote a book called Dianetics. And on that book, much of what they believe is based. It's really funny. L. Ron Hubbard once said, if you want to make a little money, write a book. If you want to make a lot of money, start a religion. Scientology as was at one time the faith, the religion of the stars, and still has a few, Tom Cruise and John Travolta, who whether their followers are stuck in the system, I don't know. One news source writes, this documentary whose convincing allegations have been vetted by 160 HBO lawyers might well turn out to be the last nail in Scientology's coffin. Lawrence Wright, on who this documentary, the book that he wrote, it's based on, explains why he spent so much time and invested so much energy in this. He actually says, my goal wasn't to write an expose. He says, I was simply trying to understand Scientology. A few years back, as I wanted to understand this more, someone had given me this book, and it's um, from the daughter of the guy who's the leader of it, David Miskovich. Um, 
she writes, my secret life inside Scientology and my harrowing escape called Beyond Belief by Jean Miskovich Hill. And she writes her story in there. And I kept reading and I, I just kept going, I just can't believe how dysfunctional, how off this is, how, how they're trapped in this reality. And I, I, there was times when I would read this and I saw the stuff they did with kids and, and, and her life and her desire to escape it. I, it, it moved me to tears. I was kind of like, I, I can't believe this. But we, we look at it and we go, it's so, so simple, it's so off base, but it's, but it's a reality that they've come to understand. They live with these ideas that are so embedded in their life. And, and it's not only that they're embedded with their life, they're connected to people. They have family members there. And if you leave it, you leave everything. And there's a time when Jesus looked at people and he said, you know what, you may have to leave family, mother, sister, in order to become more functional, to leave that which is maybe not functioning quite so well. And I was angry at this system. And then last Sunday I spoke on the last of the Beatitudes in a sermon I titled, Gladly Rejected. And I got a number of emails. And one of the individuals said I could even share this this morning. And, and they wrote me, Hi, Kevin. And a number of these emails attest to something similar. I have been attending Wyzetta Free for a few months and have been enjoying this series so much. My husband and I were raised in a religious community that felt they had the keys to the kingdom, the understanding of reality. And leaving that community was very scary. Yet we felt drawn to step into the light. Not just drawn, she writes, but forced. I would read the Bible and feel it screaming at me. I felt like I was wearing overhauls and God was pulling me by the straps. We had spent our lives counting on this religious group to save us and help us and to point us to what was true. In leaving this comfort, as ridiculous as it sounds, was terrifying. In leaving, we had to leave all our friends and most of our relatives behind. I felt like I was jumping off the earth into space with arms open wide, counting on Christ to catch me. And God had mercy on me in my distress. She shares this incredible sign that God had given her after a number of signs. And God was there to help me. And God was faithful to me. And what felt like a free fall never was. He was with me all the way. So back to the question. Just how accurate is your mental map of reality? I just want you to think about it. How many of us live, we don't even realize, in a going clear kind of sense of reality? How many of us really do have it figured out? What if Jesus wasn't just a really good guy with some great stories and a bunch of committed followers who, who began a worldwide movement? What if Jesus truly was a unique, only Son of God who understood truth and reality because he truly did come from above and was born below in order to, to basically rescue all of us from a world system that was distorted and untrue? that didn't really know how to love, didn't really understand what was real. What if Jesus knew the truth, saw the truth, spoke the truth, lived the truth fully and completely? And what if Jesus was who he said he was? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what if Jesus calls us and frees us from this dysfunctional world of sin and selfishness and fear and doubt 
and pride and sorrow and death into something that is far more real than we even have a grip on. So let me tell you another story. I really like this story. It's a story that happened probably about a week before. So if you rewind the tape a little bit further before the resurrection, a few weeks before the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's teaching in a region that's not too far from Jerusalem, and he gets word that his good friend Lazarus is ill. He's gravely sick. And we're not just talking about being days or weeks away from dying. We're talking in his heart and mind. He knew it was, it was probably hours or moments or even breaths away from dying. And this message comes to him. And Luke 11, John 11 gives this account. When Jesus hears the news, he says, this sickness will not end in death. So all the guys, the disciples are going, that's good. And he goes on, no, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. It's so that people will see that they'll understand this reality that I've come to bring is really true. And so Jesus stays two more days before he goes to make his visit to Lazarus, to Bethany, which is just a few miles from Jerusalem. And the disciples are not excited about going. They're very much afraid because he had left Jerusalem with death threats. And so coming back into that meant they would also be walking back into these death threats. And so they, they kind of say, Jesus, you know, let's not go. And Jesus goes, the Heavenly Father will protect us. And he makes a statement of, you know, when you walk in the daylight, you can be safe. You're not walking the night, which really just basically means that if you're in the will of God, you don't need to worry. He knows your hour and your time. Which I just want to say, that's one of the truths that Jesus gives to people who trust him. You don't have to worry about when you're going to die. God knows it. He just wants you to relax in your life. And if, he, if you're in his will and you're walking according to his way, you're going to be safe, is what Jesus is saying. He says, so guys, settle down. That's the reality. Just trust me. And so he, he continues on. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So Now, his disciples don't just have a problem with fear of the death threats. They, they have no clue of what's really going on either. They're kind of clueless like we are in some ways. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. And I love the way that Jesus refers to that, because then his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. It's a good thing you sleep. Sleeping is good, isn't it? There's some doctors here, right? Jesus had been speaking of death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he went ahead and told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may trust, believe, understand the reality that I've brought. So let's go to him. I really want to disrupt your mental furniture, guys. You've been resting on something that isn't worthy of resting on. So then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to one of the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's kind of the Eeyore of disciples. Oh, boy. Let's all go and die with Jesus. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And there were a lot of Jews there who were visiting Martha and Mary from Jerusalem and other places because they were people of influence. Martha runs to him, if only you'd been here, if only you'd been here, you could have saved him. You know, when he was alive, you could have saved him. And Jesus says, don't worry, he'll be raised a new life. And, and Martha goes, I know, at the end of time, at the final resurrection, he'll be saved. But if you could have been here... And Jesus looks at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. 
And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he looks at her and says, do you believe this? Seriously, folks, that's truth. The Spirit of God can be looking at you right now and saying this truth to you. You need to know this. You don't need to fear death if you trust in Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, even though you die. And whoever lives trusting their life, putting their life into my hands, will never die. And the Spirit of God is looking in your eyes and saying, do you believe this this Easter? Well, she says, yes, Lord. Yeah, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. She's still a little confused. And God is really okay with that. I love how patient Jesus is with every one of us. Isn't it great? He knows we're just like little kids. Now Mary's told about Jesus' arrival, so she runs to Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you could have just been here while he was alive. And when Jesus saw her weeping and and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, catch this, he was deeply moved and troubled and asked, where have you laid him? Now, you have to understand, if you have a Bible and you want to underline that, deeply moved is he groaned so deeply within his being. And the word troubled is really the word indignant. It really means that he was miffed, he was livid, he was mad, he was furious, he was ticked off. His emotional state was not happy. Where is they laid him? As he looks at all these people weeping. And then they said, come and see the Lord. In verse 35, the one that all you know, kids learned in Sunday school, one of the favorite verses of the Bible, because it's only two words long, right? Anybody remember it? Do you memorize it? Come on, let's hear you say it. Yeah, wow. You guys all get points tonight. And here's, again, they're clueless. The Jews look and they go, see how he loved him as he's weeping? And they see this on his face? They're probably wondering, oh, if he could have just been here, he's thinking the same thing. Why didn't I just get there earlier? And then some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then verse 38, Jesus once more groaning, deeply moved, the idea of being indignant, he's ticked, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, like when he was laid in. And he said, take away the stone. And, and Martha's going, the sister of the dead man, could not know, four days in the Middle East in the heat, even though it's cool in that tomb, four days, it's going to stink, it's a bad order, don't do it, bad idea. <laughs> and Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, if you trust, if you put your mental map of furniture and rest on this, what is true, you will see the glory of God. And so they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for, that you've heard me. Listen, Jesus is praying this prayer, and then he says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people, you and me and all those who were around Jesus that day, that they may believe that you sent me. And when they heard this, Jesus called in a loud voice. I love this, because in the scripture, death is merely euphemistically always titled as sleep. You will either sleep when you die and go to hell or go to heaven. You will go away from the presence of God. If you don't want the presence of God now, it's not something strange is going to all of a sudden happen and start moving you towards him. You'll get just what you want. 
But those who trust and say, God, I, I think your mental map of reality, your love and your goodness, and, and the fact you may disturb some of the things that I really want to hold on to, that's okay. I want you because I trust you. I understand that you really see what is true and what is really real. And I want to move towards you because when you do sleep, you will awake to a reality which is called the presence of God, which is called heaven. You get a choice. And I love this because I stood before my grandma and I wanted to shake her and just wake her up. And here's Jesus. Here's the picture of reality. Jesus stands outside this tomb. They're saying, don't open it. He opens it. The odor's there. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is sleeping on there. And he wakes up. He wakes up and he walks out. And Jesus says, take the strips of cloth off. There's almost a sense that he's looking at us today. You know what? All of us are somewhat bound by a bunch of strips of lies that keep us from all that God wants us to understand in this life because he wants us to move into reality. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to walk in freedom. He wants us to know his love. He wants you to have good relationships with other people. He wants this church to thrive and to impact the world. He wants all these things. And he just calls to us, he says, you know, what's your, you know, are you willing to be disrupted? Are you humble enough to, to be disrupted with your mental map? And are you actually able to look at it and go, how accurate? Well, will this humble me a little bit and go, you know what, I need you, God. And then you, you get this choice of really believing whether Jesus is who he said he is and following him. Yeah, yeah, I love Jesus because he, he doesn't say get cleaned up, do this or that. He would walk along in life. He would look at people like you and, and me and he would say, do you want to follow me? Right where you're at, right where you're at in your sin and your guilt or wherever you may be, whatever you think, whatever your thoughts are, you may doubt him, you may be an atheist, it doesn't really matter. But you, you are attracted to the Spirit of God speaking to you right now and the Spirit of God like Jesus would call to you and say, hey, just follow me. It, 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 there's grace here. Grace means it's a gift of relationship with me. Just begin to follow me. And if you begin to follow me and you begin to say, I want your way, he'll, he'll do the convicting of what needs to take place in your life. He'll show you your need. So I just want to ask you something here. Why do you think Jesus wept? What do you think he was angry about? This isn't a trick question. I'm going to ask you just to turn to someone and just say to him, why do you think Jesus was wept? And why do you think he was angry? Okay, now if you came by yourself and you're going, oh boy, this is scary, you just go like this, okay, and everyone will leave you alone. But I'm serious. Turn to someone and tell them why you think Jesus was angry and wept. Your best idea. It doesn't really, you know, there's no quiz, there's no test on this. Okay. Here's my idea from what I think Scripture is very, in my mind, is clear on. Jesus wept because he was aware that every one of us has been hoodwinked with the false understanding of ultimate reality. Jesus wept because he understood that we are all living this dysfunctional world and our ideas of God and who he is and who we are and all of them are blinded by our own sin and distortion. We're all, think about it, we're all living in a going clear kind of reality. And Jesus is calling us out into a relationship with him, which will really test sometimes the relationships you're in. doesn't mean you have to totally forsake them, but it will mean that you will probably have to begin to start looking at the reality and the ideas of who Jesus is. I think Jesus was ticked by how God's children had been duped through lies and fear because this was not the way the world was created. And he knew it. And the picture is that of Jesus. Catch this. He is the only functional one in the family. I love that. 
He's the only functional one. He's the son who's functional, and he's calling to us, brothers and sisters, and saying, guess what? There's a reality that really changes all reality if you follow me. And we all have a choice. Where do we want to live? It's as if we're all brainwashed by this earthly culture, and Jesus is calling us into this heavenly culture where God lives. He lives right next to you, and he is available to you through faith, by grace, by answering his call. So let me just ask, finally, what if, as Jesus claims, he is the only accurate map of reality? Here's the picture I have of Jesus on this morning. Here's what's so disruptive about the resurrection. It is the reality of the kingdom of heaven breaking forth into this world, disrupting all our mental images. No one could have figured this out if it wasn't for the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. It's like Paul, as he writes to a group of followers, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. What you're believing in, your mental furniture is not working for you. Your reality is off. Your ideas are false. I want you to think about this in in closing here. Dallas Wood writes these, these important words. He says, The major cultural outlook today is that there is no objective truth or reality, that what we call facts are, are, are only human products, that there is nothing more to knowledge than the best professional practice as currently defined. And in the words of the late Lily Tomlin, what is reality anyway? Nothing but a collective hunch. And he goes on to write, Moral principles more than all else, are taken to be mere prejudices of a certain group, none of which is superior to any of the other, because without God we have no place to stand for a perspective on shifting scenes of human history, custom, and desire. And then he says this, The traditional view of truth has always been that truth, knowledge, and reality are not matters of what you or your group think. The task of truth has always been, and still will be, is to come to correct terms with what is actually there, regardless of how you or others may view it. The earth is round. You have no gas in your tank or to make, to make your car run. And money in your account to buy things. You're degraded by doing what is morally wrong. You will face judgment after death and an eternal destiny of a certain age's regardless of what you may or may not think about such things. Truth. This idea of matching up your life with reality is so important that Jesus Christ came into the world to point to it. That's what we celebrate. There is one who is broken in this world who looks at you and me and says, follow me. I will lead you into the way. I will help you understand the reality of all this stuff far better than you could. And I will in it give you life. And no one comes into the Father that reality except through this understanding of following him. That's it. That's the invitation at Easter. That's the revolutionary power of the, of the resurrection. Jesus is stamped with approval by the Father and says, Good job, son. 
way to be so incredibly functionally pure and holy and good and loving and gracious and kind that you would give up your life so that all of us could be drawn into life with him. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let's stand together as the band comes and we're going to sing an old hymn that I ask you to sing out with joy. And as you're kind of singing this, you may be in a place where you're really still wrestling with these thoughts. And it may be that that the Spirit of God is speaking to you and and you are in a place where you have rejected that and you're just kind of going, my ideas are better. And Jesus is saying today, hey, guess what? I'd love for you to follow me. For some of you, Jesus may have just opened the eyes of your heart and he's saying, you know what? You've had a closet closed in your life. You've got a room that's closed. You've got a relationship that's not right. And I, I'd really love for you to follow me in this. Well, you know, sometimes I get so into the message, I forget parts of it. So we got four minutes. And I want to show you this clip, and I'll just make a brief comment on it. So you can be seated for a second. And Andrew, show this clip story of survival after a 14-year-old fell through ice and was underwater for 15 minutes. This morning, he's telling his story exclusively to NBC News. Kristen Dahlgren has more for us. Kristen, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. They say five to ten minutes without oxygen, and you're likely to suffer massive brain damage. And doctors say Missouri teen John Smith was without oxygen for much longer than that. But this morning, he is home. He can walk. He can talk. And boy, does he have a story to tell. Eighth grader John Smith doesn't remember much after this picture. He and two friends posing out on the ice of Lake St. Louise. And then this. There's one child underwater now. Frigid water and a desperate scramble by rescuers trying to pull John to safety. There's no really any explanation but how God wanted me to live for a reason, so I'm alive now. Doctors agree, calling John's survival miraculous. He was gone. I mean, he was, I've never felt someone that cold in my life. They had little hope when John came in. The boy had been under the icy water for 15 minutes. They tried to revive him for almost half an hour, then called in his mother to tell her he was gone. I started praying very loudly. God, please don't take my son. She came on in here, walked in, sat down and yelled out, come Holy Spirit, and said his name and... A few seconds later, we had a heartbeat. It gave me goosebumps. It was just a miracle. And I remember everybody just kind of started crying. He's the light of my life. But would he ever be the same? John kept defying the odds. Within 48 hours, he opened his eyes. Then the basketball-loving teen gave doctors a sign that his mind was still okay. We said, well, John, pretend your left hand is LeBron James and your right hand is Michael Jordan, and then asked him a series of questions, and he got them all right. It was really amazing. On Friday, rescuers met up with Smith, giving him some Cavs gear, even though he knows they have already given him the greatest gift. We're thankful that I'm alive now. We want to thank KSTK, our St. Louis affiliate. I just wanted to show that because um, I don't know why God works in some cases the way he does, but he's real. It's not about our will. This whole Christian faith is about recognizing his will and submitting our hearts to him. It's amazing. It's amazing what God can do for your life. 
It's amazing the peace He can bring to you. It's amazing how He can begin to move in your marriage. He can move in your family. He can move in your, you know, those places in your life. And it may not happen immediately. But we know that God is real. Jesus, this day, made that very, very clear. Let's stand together. Father, with great joy we give you thanks. We cry out, Holy Spirit, glorify your Son, Jesus, so that the Father in heaven may have the freedom to do all that he wills, which is always good and perfect. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. He's risen. Amen.